from the Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for May the 31st, 2020, the last day of May. We're in phase three uh, for the rest of the state and hopefully for the city next week, this coming week. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and on to the White House. So everybody, please be safe, take a break, grab a beverage, and we'll uh, get you prepared for what you need to know for the rest of the week. Uh, Roger, you know. Yes, sir. This has been uh, a weekend I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, Yet um, I have not seen... uh, Stuff like this. I've not been impacted uh, personally since uh, the 68 riots, the the convention. Yep. Democratic convention, downtown Chicago. It was, would you say, because you remember, uh, do you think? A little bit. A little bit bigger? (laughs) About three, four, five times as big as far as the number of people involved? Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, the entire Grant Park was filled. Right, sure. Um, So we're talking thousands, um, I would imagine. But but still, on on the same scale, uh, this had as much impact because of the cause and because of the passion. If you take the looting out of it, well, that's and that's that's the thing. Yeah, is uh, certainly the the cause and the passion are just uh but uh as using the mayor's term when it gets hijacked right from being a protest to being a riot and the uh indiscriminate nature of uh, destroying property mm-hmm. yeah the, uh, i can understand passion but the passion of the cause of the the basis for the protest the passion need should be directed. I understand the anger and the passion, but should be directed at solutions. That is exactly right, and I mean, and I can understand. You know, I was sitting at the press conference with the the, the governor and the mayor today, mm-hmm. and uh, state's attorney was there, and uh, you you hear from these african-american politicians about you know it's something i can't understand obviously Mm -hmm. but just this kind of uh how much more you know right how much more totally understood totally um and yeah that that there is no question there there is no question there uh i mean and and it and the systemic racism is is so pervasive still mm-hmm. um you 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 see it by who's getting stopped uh mm-hmm. going through a checkpoint here to get mm-hmm. downtown mm-hmm. um and th- that's it's uncalled for yeah totally and 
we're better than this. And and I have to tell you, you know, I I hold up yesterday. I didn't go out anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then to uh, be downtown today and see, as I said, just this indiscriminate destruction. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it's mind blowing. This this isn't my city, and and I, I either that or it's the people who did it aren't my city residents. Understood. And um, I mean, I I I know somebody who apparently uh, there was a, a a liquor store that had been vandalized, mm-hmm. and people were coming into. A back up to their residences, you know, with clutching arms full of of bottles that they had stolen from the store. Yeah, not thinking anything of it. Yeah, and and but I think that has been evident every time this type of situation happens, where you have looting um, and 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 destruction of um, property. Uh, it's not just the case of, oh, let's break this window. That makes a statement. I think let's break this window because we want to get inside and get whatever's in there. Right. I can't speak for everyone who's broken a window. Um, but, I mean, I, from the video that I've seen since last night, that seems to be what's happening. Well, and as the the mayor pointed out, you know, when you've got people pulling up with U-Haul trucks, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's organized. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it, there yeah. certainly is every bit of of randomness, or at least a premeditation. But, but yes, but but it's certainly to take advantage of a chaotic situation. Yes, and uh, it's going on today now yes. out in some of the suburbs. Right? I, yeah, I had a friend We're of mine the was live texting videos. me out there. Yeah, uh, and. How streets are closed, and uh, that uh, uh, I guess in Downers Grove they basically told businesses to shut down for the day, mm. fearing uh, mm-hmm. problems this evening. Um, you know, it was it was no easy no easy trick getting here to the studio yeah. today, um, but but understandably so. Yeah, understandably so. I have. I just want to say I've I'm constantly in touch with a lot of my former students. And several of them I've been keeping track of uh, on social media um, that they're on. And I fear for them. I, I honestly fear for them um, because they're staying away from this, but their anger is so deep. And I worry for them and how they're treated um, uh, as we go forward. How they're internalizing this. A- exactly. There's no, what are you going to do, slam your fist against a wall to, to get your anger out, go work out at a gym? I, it's, I can't understand the depth of their emotion uh, from what happened the other day in Minneapolis. Not the, not the protests, not the right. riots, from... Uh, uh, George Floyd's death. I cannot fathom what they are feeling, but I see what they are feeling because I've been staying in touch with them. Well, and and you know, all of us that have seen the video, and yeah, we're all horrified by it. Yeah, but but for an African American 
that is just got to be, as I said, I can't understand. Yeah. I can't, yeah. and I won't even try. Uh, but it's um, it's interesting times out there. Yep. Uh, Roger's here to keep us up to date on all the news, and uh, Roger, feel free to cut in at any time if anything is going on. Hopefully we can have a calmer, peaceful night in Chicago. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. She's at 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin, and we're on Twitter at symbol Sunday Spin. You can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcast by searching for my name, Rick Pearson, over at iTunes. We're going to take a quick break on this Sunday afternoon. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred is your phone number. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday spin. Uh, up ahead on the show, after the 5.30 headlines, we'll speak to Lissa Druss. She's the founder and CEO of Strategia Consulting, and we'll talk to her about the Our American Voices Civic Education Program for Students, uh, a worthwhile topic to talk about today. Uh, Roger's back with the news at 6, and we'll speak to Illinois State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. And we'll talk to her about uh, the events that have trans- transpired in recent days, as well as how she's going to be trying to manage the state's books during a time of deeply falling state revenue due to the coronavirus. Uh, after 6.30, we'll speak to State Representative Chris Welch, Democrat from Hillside. He's the chairman of the powerful House Executive Committee, saw so that legislation that went through the General Assembly, but we'll also talk to him about uh, what's going on out in the suburbs uh, as uh, the continued fallout from uh, the tragic death of George Floyd. After 7 o'clock, we'll speak to Chris Johnson. He's head of the National Association of Theater Owners of Illinois chapter. He's also the CEO of Classic Cinemas. And we'll talk to him about the theater uh, owner's uh, desire to try to move up in the phasing of the reopening of uh, Illinois businesses uh, and how uh, whether it's possible uh, to sit in a theater and maintain the social distancing factor. And then after 7.30, we'll speak to Mark Maxwell. He's the Statehouse correspondent for Nextstar's TV stations in Illinois, including WGN-TV. He's based down at WCIA-TV, Channel 3 in Champaign. And we'll talk to him about uh, some of the politics uh, of both pandemic politics and the politics of race. That's up ahead. And, of course, uh, you know, when you look at these protests across the nation, uh, the death of George Floyd after a policeman kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes in a truly horrifying video, four officers fired. Former officer Derek Chauvin was charged with murder. On CNN, Philanese Floyd, George Floyd's brother, was asked about the protests in Minneapolis. Well, I want everybody to understand that it's just like a child searching for attention. They're doing everything positive and nobody's listening. And all of a sudden they just start acting out. So I want, you know, everybody to be peaceful right now, but people are torn and hurt because they're tired of seeing black men die constantly over and over again. You know, I spoke to, uh, Eric Garner and uh, mom and 
Reverend Al Sharpton, and you know her son couldn't breathe. He kept saying he couldn't breathe, and my brother said the same thing that he couldn't breathe, and nobody cared. That's uh, Phil and East Floyd, the brother of George Floyd, who was uh, talking on CNN about the uh, protests that turned violent in Minneapolis. Now, the president, of course, has been on Twitter a lot. Uh, he tweeted, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. And Trump then added on a, a tweet, any difficulty, and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. The looting starts, the shooting starts is a phrase that was used by Walter Headley. Walter Headley was a racist white Miami police chief who targeted blacks in 1967 ahead of the Republican National Convention. Now, the president was asked about using the phrase, and he said he's heard the phrase lots of times, and it became true. It's obviously been a long day for a lot of Americans, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to address some of your tweets from this morning. Uh, you tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. How would you know that phrase and not know its racially charged history? Well, I've heard that phrase for a long time. I don't know where it came from, where it originated. I view that phrase as... In 1967, the Miami police... Well, I don't know. I've also heard from many other places, but I've heard it for a long time, as most people have. And frankly, it means when there's looting, people get shot and they die. And if you look at what happened last night and the night before, you see that. It's very common. And that's the way that was meant, and that's the way I think it was supposed to be meant. But I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it originated. I wouldn't know a thing like that. But I will say it's very accurate in the sense that when you do have looting, like you had last night, people often get shot and they die. And that's not good, and we don't want that to happen. Now, Trump followed up on Twitter to that, noting uh, that the protesters that were outside the White House on Friday night would have been met by vicious dogs, something that uh, a lot of critics said it was reminiscent of those pre-civil rights era photos of attacks on protesters in the South. Trump also said they'd be met by ominous weapons. Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said now is the time for unity, not divisive tweets. Imagine having police called on you just for sitting in Starbucks or, or, or renting an Airbnb or watching birds. You know, this is the norm black people in this country deal with. They don't have to imagine it. The anger and frustration and the exhaustion, it's undeniable. But that is, that's not the promise of America. It's long past time that we made the promise of this nation real for all people. You know, this is no time for incendiary treats, tweets. It's no time to encourage violence. This is a national crisis. We need real leadership right now. Leadership that will bring everyone to the table so we can take measures to root out systemic racism. That's uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Barb, we've got Barb of Evergreen Park on the line with a comment. Barb, thank you for joining the Sunday Spin. Thank you for taking my call. So I am a white, middle-aged woman, and I am finding through discussion over the weekend that a lot of my so-called peers disagree with my view. And just to sum it up, um, I do not condone violence. I've never been a violent person. However, 
um, as someone who has studied um, society, culture, history, and so on, I, I understand it because um, the peaceful means that, that are being talked about, like the, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, protesting, picketing, or even things like petitions or any of that, that that's been done not, not only for years, not only for decades, but for even longer throughout our history. And we still have um, very systemic racism. We have innocent people dying. This man that was killed by the police in Minneapolis, he's my brother, too. Even though I'm white, I'm outraged because he's a fellow human being. And so, obviously, black people... I'm guessing would be that much more outraged, but how how can we be? I have I just have a rhetorical question. How can we as a society be more upset about property being damaged than we are about constantly, um, you know, black people being killed by authority figures? Why why is the property damage more offensive? than the deaths. And I wanted to say one other thing. A big hero of mine a couple years ago was Colin Kaepernick. And many of my peers strongly criticized him. And um, there was a quote on the Internet that I saw by John F. Kennedy saying, you know, and someone was quoting him, if you don't allow the peaceful protest, then there will be violence. So all these people coming down on people like Colin Kaepernick that was totally peaceful I don't know. I guess I'm rambling now. Well, but no, I but just... I mean, Barb, and, and you make a good point about people being upset at property versus person. And I think part of that, uh, I mean, is that it's a diversion. The, 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 our, you know, we're looking at the, the looting and the property damage, and we're not looking at the, the you know, what people were were out peacefully protesting about, which is the, the, the bigger picture. But I think this is so systemic, and the property and all that rec- uh, stands for our capitalistic culture and uh, what it's all about. I mean, a lot of it comes down to um, greed and materialism and just who is running our society. And so maybe the looting doesn't seem connected, but I think in a way it is because they're trying to turn systemic structures, and that includes capitalism upside down i mean the rage is just coming through in that way there's nothing else we can do the peaceful stuff's not working let's just turn things upside down i I totally understand that frustration barb thank you so much for calling i appreciate your comments we're going to take a quick break you're listening to the sunday spin on wgn this is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin on this uh, very strange Sunday in downtown Chicago. Um, as uh, everybody uh, is being kept away from the downtown except for essential workers and uh, a distinct smell of sawdust in the air from the windows that were the broken windows that were being boarded up well joining me now on the phone 
is a good friend of mine, a good friend of the program, Lisa Druss. She's the founder and CEO of Strategic Consulting, and she's also a major, major factor behind what's called Our American Voice, which is a uh, program aimed at uh, educating students about civics. And I think anybody who's been uh, familiar with this show over the years knows that I've been a strong advocate for uh teaching civics in school. Uh, I mean, it still amazes me that up until just relatively recently, it wasn't even mandated to be taught in schools. Now it is, and not only just in high school, but also uh, in middle school as well. So, uh, but Lissa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rick, and what a time for us to be talking about civics. Yeah, well, and I thought about that too. I mean, because... um, civic engagement is that's that's how change happens and go ahead no it it has to happen early which is why our american voice it's a nonprofit program it's a before or after school program that teaches not just reading about civics it's not a government exam it's committing civics doing it learning about it and action items and acting on what needs to be done through the civic process. Yeah, and that's what I like about this is it's 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 getting uh students involved. Uh and and it's not just, you know, reading a history book or or memorizing dates and, and years and you know, Illinois, you know, prior to the mandate to teach civics, uh, really the only kind of mandate was that you had to pass a constitution test, which that that's not the same thing. That's not the same. No, thing. it's not. And it's. I, I got to tell you, for the years that I've been involved with our American Voice, there is nothing more gratifying than going to a middle school and seeing kids come to school early, an hour early at times, for a volunteer program, where they go in and what they do is in their communities they. With, a, with the help of the teachers, and we, we would be nothing without the OAV teachers in this program, but they figure out a problem or an issue in their community or in their school through the civic process. They examine it and figure out what a solution is to that issue or problem, and then they solve it. And it's, it's incredible to see these kids coming to school. They want to do something, and they all are just so involved, and that's the key is getting them early because okay we all study the government but just doing it is another is another thing it's, it's just an amazing thing to see well give me an example of, of, a, of a problem that got solved so i'm going to give you a couple okay i'm going to back up a little bit every year we it's a year-long program and at the end we do a summit in chicago for the students who can't go to springfield but then we usually take about 200 students to springfield from 26 schools. So this year we had 26 schools. We had a summit planned for Springfield. It was May 14th, I believe. And with COVID-19, we had to cancel it. Now, first of all, you can imagine taking 200 kids to Springfield when the House and Senate are in session. It's like zone defense. (laughs) (laughs) But every senator and representative, every senator and representative for the last few years has met with their students that go to Springfield and including the governor, both Rauner and Pritzker, would take a big photo with the students on the Capitol steps. So you see these kids going to Springfield, meeting their senators and their reps. It was powerful. Well, this year with COVID-19, we changed it up. 
And so we started reaching out to every state rep and senator and saying, hey, you've got these students in your community. Would you consider doing, if the school could do it, would you consider doing a Zoom call with them? And as of, for 26 schools so far, we've done seven live Zoom calls with the students and the teachers, and we're recording more, we're doing more. Uh, If they couldn't do Zoom, they send messages to the students. Senator Durbin, for I don't know how many years in a row, has sent a personal video message to all these students, but you talked about projects. So Senator John Curran, he was so wonderful. We had to reschedule him, not once, not twice, but three times. But his school and his district, Lester Elementary, they were doing a sensory pathway for students that have anxiety or excitement or just need a break, a brain break. And so they were, they met with an occupational therapist and they were planning this out because of COVID-19. They couldn't finish it this year. They're going to pick it up next year. Um, Senator um, Bill Cunningham at Central Middle School in Evergreen Park. There's a park down there that actually he helped get state funding for. Well, these students realized there was no way for the special needs kids to go to the park. So they started a fundraising drive to build this up. And not only did they get railed for COVID-19, so then they turned to TikTok and Twitter. And they actually have a GoFundMe page where teachers would do dances and sing and this and that to raise money for this program. And that's one school where actually both Senator Bill Cunningham and Representative Kelly Burke both did video conferences with their students. Um, And then Representative Denmer at Salmonac Middle School, they, this is their inaugural year for OAB, but they had a school parking lot where their handicap signs were only painted on the parking lot. So if it snowed, you couldn't see them. So they went to their administration, and they were able to secure five signs installed in the parking, gra- parking lot for the handicap-accessible parking spaces. So it's it's an amazing, amazing program, and the, the things that the students identify and realize that are important to their communities, to their schools, and they attack them, and they do them with vigor. Now, how many schools have this program? 26 schools, and it's really, it's about funding, quite frankly. It's, it's a nonprofit organization. We have our own fundraising drives. We, you know, we do what we can because it is solely funded by the donations that we get. And we believe me, we wish it could be in many more schools across the state. But we're, this year we were in 26. Uh, last year, I believe we were in 28. It's just a matter of what happens and where. But in the students volunteer for it. And each teacher drives each program in each school. They really do. We have teaching uh, curriculum where they're trained by John Fontanetta, who's an um, unbelievable administrator of the program. And then the teachers take it upon themselves. And the teachers love it as much as the students do. Well, and that's that's what I like is that it's the students that that volunteer to take part in this. It's aside from the state mandated teaching, this is their wanting to, to be active and that they 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 want to be part of this program. Absolutely. Look, we are grateful that the high school civics program was passed by law, which I was actually was involved with that too, and we're grateful that the middle school program was passed that students have to take it but this program our american voice is more of the action the doing of it the really examining drilling down and solving problems through the civic process 
We're speaking with Lissa Druss. She is the founder and CEO of Strategia Consulting, and uh, she is also a major factor behind the program Our American Voice. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is Lissa Druss. She is the founder and CEO of Strategic Consulting, and she is also a, a, a go-getter on this program called Our American Voice. This is an effort to get students involved, actively involved in in learning civics and, and partaking in civics to see uh, how productive that that change can be. And you know, Lissa, as as we kind of started the conversation, um, this is kind of an example of maybe we need civics minded people more than ever. It really is because, unfortunately, what we're seeing right now are just news accounts. And we're not seeing the behind the scenes of what is taking place, how decisions are being made, and what is is through the legislative process, what's through the law enforcement process. You know, everyone's drinking from not one fire hose right now, but about 15. And across the board, no one really understands what's happening because we haven't seen this probably in 30 years. Uh, And so... This is the time to also take a step back and look at what happened and learn from it, especially in the schools. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, this is – and we had a call earlier about, you know, the, obviously you have politicians who talk change and, and, and want to make things change, uh, but change doesn't happen quickly. And – that's not to say that uh, you know when you have issues of institutional or systemic racism uh, in a system, uh, it shouldn't take it shouldn't take decades to to fix. No, it should. But there's also there's actually you know there's fundamental changes in policing that need to be fixed. And I'm only saying this from experience. The, the president of my company, Eric Kolchak, he was the captain and public information officer at Baltimore Police Department during the Freddie Gray, Freddie Gray riots. And he's actually written a book about how law enforcement needs to take a separate, a, a new look at how they approach their job. It's not so much about enforcing the law. It's about building the relationships in the community. And that's a big fundamental part of what's going on right now and what he is observing. And he and I talk only about 15 times a day <laughs> about what's going on. And, and I, I work in law enforcement. I'm a consultant to federal, state, and local agencies. And it's across the board. It's, you know, there has to be a change. And what we're seeing right now is 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 crazy. I, I'm, full disclosure, I'm in River Forest. 45 minutes ago, the CVS at Thatcher and North Avenue got looted. And all the businesses around here are shutting down because they're coming into the suburbs now. This also isn't about a protest on a man's death right now. This is just robbing stuff. Oh, it, yeah. It, it's obviously from some of the things that we're seeing going on in the suburbs uh, today that, yeah, this is this is not this is not an effort at protest. This is purely uh, to try and to try and sow chaos. 
Absolutely. And that's the thing is, is what, what does chaos do? It, there's no, there's nothing good about chaos, nothing whatsoever. You know, yeah, there's always a phrase, there's organized chaos. That it just, it, it, if we could just stop and look at what we're talking about and look at fundamental change, you know, and, and do it through the civic process. Well, yeah. And, and you, you touched on the point about the issue of uh, policing and the issue of trust. And it, it seems like every time there's a step forward on a trust aspect, you have two steps back because of the actions of old policing or bad policing. Um, and and that, that trust goes right out the window. Well, trust in any issue is a very hard word. And it doesn't have to be in policing. And we all know that. And to earn someone trust is a very hard thing to do, but once you do, it's incredibly valuable. And what is trust built on? Trust is built on relationships. And if you have those strong relationships, then out comes trust. And that's what Eric keeps talking about is law enforcement needs to build relationships in the communities so that there is that trust. And we don't see trust right now. But that, that, but that's something that's been talked about for a long time. Is, is that kind of trust deficit. And I mean, look at CPD. How many police superintendents have we had that have come in and said, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix this? Community policing is out. Oh, community policing is in. Oh, right. wait, it's out. Oh, wait, it's back in again. <laughs> there has to be some, you know, stable course of action to instill change. And that stability has been lacking, uh, greatly lacking. Uh, and not, it's not just CPD. Uh, we have great sure. friends in CPD. It's all over. And until, unfortunately, something like this happened, maybe it was a wake-up call for people to understand that this, is, this has never happened before. Eric and I were talking again, uh, our 14th time today, <laughs> about how this is different from the Baltimore riots. He's like, this is, he goes, this is, not, this is not right. We know it's not right fundamentally. But this is different. This is spreading out across the entire country and outside of the cities. Well, and, and that's that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it's it, certainly uh, George Floyd's death was a, was a catalyst, uh, was a was a flashpoint. But then you go from you know the the, the wake up call of racism as it still exists. And then it kind of jumps into, as I said, the mayor referred to it as, you know, the, the, the protests get hijacked and, and turns into uh, rioting and looting. And uh, I, I still think, you know, that takes away from the fundamental issue of what the protesters are trying to accomplish is, you know, to have everybody acknowledge that we still have very, very serious problems about race and talking about race in, and dealing with race in this society. Absolutely. And protests are a good thing. You raise awareness. If they, they serve a purpose. When you are raising awareness of the issue, you're building a coalition, just like we do in politics or in issue-driven management. You build a coalition, you're stronger, strengthen numbers, and that's how you affect change. And a protest is a way of building a coalition, and that's a good thing. But when a protest turns into stupidity, that's when we just got to buckle down, lock your doors, and 
wait for this to ride out. Well, as you so well know, and this, this, you know, the political axiom from for candidates as well as for issues is to grow support, is to broaden support, is to be able to form those kind of relationships and coalitions uh, to to attract support and and. Uh, advance an issue or advance a candidate you you can't do it by lessening support absolutely absolutely and you also can't do it you don't do it by way of looting a store and running out with a couple pairs of shoes either um let's go let's go back to our american voice here for uh, for a minute here and um so you had obviously the the covid uh (laughs) issue which you know, because so much of that is like going to Springfield is the face-to-face uh, meeting with these these politicians, and the fact that you know these uh, students are actually learning how things get done. Um, that's I've always said too is you know the the stronger element of civics as it relates to Springfield, I think, is very important because it, truly every all the powers of everything kind of flow from Springfield, uh, but. You'd, you'd, it's it's not quite the same of uh, doing it by Zoom or uh, not having the chance to go to Springfield and actually, you know, see some of the some of the history there. And it is a gorgeous building. Um, but is the program? You know, we, we don't know what school is going to be like next year. Um, it's, so I suppose in a way, it's good to have had this experience to know how to do the program. If again, if you have to do it this way. Uh, Yes, well, you bring up a good point because the the program did get derailed, you know, come March. And most of the schools finished their work via Zoom and via virtual learning like like every other classroom. And it's also funny when you, just a second ago, you talked about meeting their elected officials. Uh, During the Zoom chat with Representative Demmer, he asked if any of the students were interested in ever running for office. And two girls, ironically both named Ava, said yes, they were both interested in running for office. And, you know, they wanted to be, bring people together and respect different opinions and, they, and having civil conditions with people. And just to hear those words coming from middle school students in the conversation with Representative Demmer, it was just, it, it, it puts a smile on your face and you think, okay, there is hope. I was just you know, going to say, can, um, can can we elect them and rush them to Springfield or, or Washington exactly. quickly? Um, exactly. And and I mean, and that's why I agree with you. Is the earlier the age to do this, the better, because then it becomes kind of um, ingrained and informed in how they how these students act, look, and view government, um, and not with the more jaundiced cynical eye of of uh you know uh, that's just politics what do you expect kind of thing um, right and, and it's in middle school is still at that impressionable age it really is i mean you know I, i'm i'm the chairman of the jared payton foundation and jp goes and talks to middle school students because we can still they listen and they are impressionable and these and students who are hungry to learn civics they're going to be something. They really are. Well, I was going to say, and so how long has the program been going? Uh, we are on our ninth year. 
So still a little too early to see the products of, of, of your labor here. You know, there's been there's been a couple of variations, changes. Obviously, the program's evolved over the years. There are some students that we're still in, in contact with. None of them are of electable age yet. <laughs> right. You know, but it's just to, I've seen them year and year and year. And you just know that this program has made a difference in them, whether they become an elected official or not. Maybe they work in government affairs like me and not be an elected official, or maybe they are just more civic-minded and civic-conscious, or maybe they volunteer more. Whatever the case may be, you see these students in the program. You see their eyes light up. You see them meeting elected officials. You see them working on these programs. You know they're making a difference, or, or and they are going to make a difference in the rest of their lives. Yeah, and as you say, it's not just about being a politician or running for office. It's about the whole uh, gamut of of occupations as it were that that can help influence public policy and you know Absolutely. that's a that's a that's Absolutely. a that's a very significant factor uh, how can people learn more about uh, our american voice uh they can go to ouramericanvoice.org ouramericanvoice.org it's a fantastic program that Sheila Smith started years ago with civic minded Sheila Smith and it is just Whatever anyone could do, any anyone could donate, suggest any ideas, anything upon anything. The McCormick Foundation has been a big sponsor over the years. We've gotten funding from the Library of Congress, but it's it's really the dollars and cents that we raise that help fund these kids to pay for the stipends for the teachers, to get them to go to Springfield, to get them to learn, and it's it's just a, an unbelievable pleasure to do zone defense in the Springfield Capitol with 200 students <laughs> one day every year. <laughs> it's my favorite day of the year. Well, it, it, it's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, I, I can I can see the smile on your face already. Listen, Dress. I have, I, have, I have one quick, quick story. Last year we were in Senator Bill Brady's office, um, and Leader Brady asked one of the students, do you, anyone want to be elected? And this little girl goes, no, I want to do what she does. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sorry, training, sorry, <laughs> training them all. Lisa Dress, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rick. Now the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Quite an interesting Sunday that we're having here in Chicago, in downtown Chicago. Uh, Joining me now on the phone is Democratic State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. Uh, Madam Comptroller, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Um, Nice to hear your voice, Rick. I hope you're doing okay and you and your whole team over there are safe. I know you're downtown. Uh, yes, we're we're very safe, but I will tell you, downtown is just uh, it's it was very eerie walking uh, over to the studio from uh, the Thompson Center today, and uh, I bet. I bet. and seeing just frankly uh, other other than other than law enforcement, it was uh, people with uh, cutting up plywood and and nailing plywood. No. Um, what what is your what's your take on all of this? I mean, it's it's heart wrenching to see what's happening. I mean, I obviously um, would have hoped that the protests would have stayed peaceful because honestly, there there is a lot of um, a very legitimate angst and hurt and 
um, you know, just disgust for what is happening in our country. And it's not just a one-time thing. I think these protests weren't just about, um, you know, protesting what happened to George Floyd. I mean, you're talking about just over the last three months, what has happened, what some might see as state-sanctioned violence against, you know, black and brown people. You've got George Floyd just the other day. You have Ahmed Arbery. You've got, um, you know, uh, uh, people who who should not be dead today and are dead. Breonna Taylor just in, in Kentucky in March, right? Like, at the hands of what people might feel it's because they did minor things or they even did nothing wrong and uh, are dead because of the color of their skin. And so it's not even just about that. I think, you know, initially these protests were all motivated by more than just, you know, one person, two, three, or countless others, but not just about issues with the police, but about like inequities in healthcare, the fact so many have died during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the fact that children across America and right here in Chicago and in our state, uh, depending on what color of their skin is, is how successful they're going to be in the classroom given that we don't have equity in education, no matter what bill we may have passed last year. I mean, we're still a long way away from closing the gap between children who we know are guaranteed to be successful as a result of the investments that we've made in their education versus those who happen to be black and brown and already start 10 steps behind. So there's a lot of things that need to change in our country. And what bothers me the most about uh, what started as peaceful protests and has, has now turned into, you know, rampant violence, unfortunately, um, is that that message that we need to hear and that debate that we need to have about racism, which is still very much prevalent um, in our country and in our city and in our state, um, that gets lost. And and what needs to happen, which is my, minorities and majorities coming together to actually fix this problem, um, is now going to, the focus is taken off of that, and it's all about people that are looting or, or you know, um, breaking or vandalizing uh, buildings. And the focus doesn't need to be there. It needs to be on getting rid of this, you know, systemic racism that is very much alive in, in America today. Well, and, and to me, I wonder about if there isn't a couple of things at play, too, because uh, obviously you talked about the various uh, levels of inequality uh, mm-hmm. throughout society. Uh, then, obviously, we learned about the healthcare system and and that through uh the the pandemic and how uh people of color were disproportionately affected uh by the covid uh virus uh and that they weren't able to access the same quality of care when that was involved mm-hmm. you've got obviously uh, the pandemic has drained a lot of our patients uh, for sure, for right? The powder order. keg building, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have, uh, if anything, uh, I think we're, we've gotten more divisive as as a country and, and, and a nation and as a state, uh, in part because of uh, the that that tension that that's underneath everything over over the stay at home orders and and you know, trying to fight, as the phrase is, the invisible enemy uh, without, you know, you can't 
I guess you can't see substantively what that you've accomplished anything until you get to these various phases that we have in the governor's uh, reopening plan. Uh, you know, those are those are victories. But you and, and, and even even with that, though, Rick, I mean, honestly, the um, the position that the governor is in, whether it's our governor or any governor in the in, you know other states across the country, of having to make the very difficult decision of saying that. They were going to uh, shut things down, essentially, right, which, of course, is going to create a tremendous hardship for people who can least afford it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's this, this no-win situation where if they do their job correctly, uh, not that many people will die, right, which by design then becomes a situation where because you were successful in not actually overwhelming the hospitals in not having, you know, uh, 50,000 people die in your state, that the people who didn't see those massive death tolls are going to say, see, we didn't need to do this. Uh, you know, it was a total overreaction. So from the get-go, you have to make a decision that the best outcome for you is that people say that you overreacted, because that means that less people died. But it's hard to you know, when you've lost your job or when you, you're having difficulty putting food on the table for your family, it's hard to understand that concept. But I don't envy the governor and the decision that he had to make based on legitimate science, based on the fact that he knew that if he did his job correctly, not a lot of people would die. And even with that, we've had over 5,000 people die. And this is not the flu. And it's not okay for people to pretend that it is. So, it, you know, again, it's it's a no-win situation for for folks who had to make the decision to to try to get people to understand the severity of what we were up against with COVID-19. And the worst part about this is that, you know, it has been so politicized to the point that, you know, wearing a mask is now seen as some kind of like, I'm either a Democrat or a Republican, when really wearing a mask should just be seen as, we don't want people to get sick. And if I'm asymptomatic and, and I, I, I may feel great, but I might be carrying this virus because I haven't been tested yet and I don't know yet. And I think the simplest act of kindness that we can do, regardless of what your party affiliation is, is just follow medical advice to wear a mask. But even that has been politicized. So a lot going on here, Rick. I mean, it, there are no easy answers to this, but certainly what we're seeing happen right now in Chicago and some of these surrounding suburbs now here in Illinois and across this country in all these major municipalities is just absolutely horrible and tragic. We're speaking with Susana Mendoza. She is the Comptroller for the state of Illinois. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. And on the phone is Illinois State Comptroller Susanna Mendoza. Uh, Madam Comptroller, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the state budget that uh, the legislature uh, was able to put together in its uh, abbreviated uh, pandemic-driven session in Springfield. And uh, I guess maybe just to start out, uh, we continue to see uh, the uh, largely among Republican or Republican allies this issue that uh, lawmakers uh, will get a pay raise out of this budget. Yeah, no, that's not true. Uh, lawmakers will not be getting a pay raise out of this budget. And there's one person 
no matter who's out there saying this, there's one person whose job it is to actually pay them, and that's me. So I can assure you the lawmakers will not be getting a raise in their salaries uh, for this next fiscal year, which covers the time period of July 1st, 2020, through June 30th, uh, 2021. And if anybody still doesn't take me at my word or believe me, they can actually, you know, keep me honest by going to my website and going onto our salary database, which is public record. That's available at IllinoisController.gov. And uh, every month, you know, check to see whether or not your legislator or any legislator, for that matter, has seen an increase in their pay from what they're earning today. The answer will be no. And, um, so that's just that's the deal. I, I really I think that this has become a, a political tool that unfortunately folks on the other side of the aisle are are using for their next political mailers. This is of course election season, and people get silly uh, during election season. But the fact of the matter is, no, they will not be getting an increase in pay. And I'm the person who's going to make those checks go out, and they're going to look like they are today. What about the issue? Zero. Though? What about the issue of somebody filing suit? Uh, well, that's something, of course, Rick, that is without my, that's totally out of my control. Right. And I think this is a good opportunity to clear up why it is that the legislature voted on, uh, you know, the way they, they did, did in this particular yes. session. Because, you know, the Republicans right now are saying, well, they didn't specifically vote against their pay raise, which is what the, the law currently says they're supposed to do in order to negate the pay raise. And that is true. They did not specifically vote down the pay raise. The reason, my understanding, and this is like on the record as legislative intent, I mean, Senator Menard has spoken to this and other other folks did on the floor as well. The reason they did, they chose not to take the action of voting against their pay raise um, was because there is currently uh, a court case that has not yet been decided, but was brought against me as a controller a few years ago by two former state senators who should literally be like the president and the vice president of the shameless hall of shame, if there has ever been one. And these guys, uh, the shameless um, hall of shame. (laughs) Yes. I mean like the worst of the worst. So this would be because I think they deserve to be called out. And that is uh, former state Senator Michael Nolan, former state Senator uh, Jim Claiborne, James Claiborne. And I will say that it embarrasses me beyond belief to know that these two guys were Democrats um, because it's disgusting to me what they did. These guys voted a few years ago because the law says you have to vote down your pay raise. It's a cost of living adjustment, which we call a COLA. Um, Every year, the legislature automatically gets a COLA. Uh, But if you don't if you say, well, we don't deserve that raise, or right now is the t- not the time to take the raise, you have to actually vote on the House and the Senate floor to not take the COLA. You have to vote it down. So year after year, these guys did what most legislators do, which is vote down the pay raise. Um, and not only did they vote against their pay raise, so they voted to not accept their pay raise, um, they went so far as to send out press releases about how honorable they were and how they were men of the people. And this would be terrible to take a pay raise when everybody else is suffering, blah, blah, blah. Right. And they also co-sponsored the legislation to not take the pay raise. Yet as soon as they left office, both of these like shameless grifters turned around and sued me for because they should have gotten their money because when they voted for it, they said it was unconstitutional. But so really, it's the epitome of shame. Now, that 
case has not been decided yet. I have not paid them a penny. They've, you know, they keep coming at me with more additional court filings saying that I should have paid them, that they're owed this money, and I keep fighting this. And God forbid we lose the case in court, I will appeal it. So, you know, unless if a judge orders me to have to pay it, which I certainly hope we win in court and that doesn't, you know, happen, you know, I'm not going to pay these guys. And they're going to have to, like, keep suing and do whatever they need to do to, to, to try to get some friendly judge who goes their way. But I hope that that does not happen. But having said that, because the court in this preliminary part of the, um, of the findings uh, has preliminarily ruled uh, that that the action of voting down a pay raise is actually unconstitutional. Um, they haven't told me I have to pay yet, and I'm still fighting this. The legislature, knowing that this court case is still being um, litigated. you know, fought, right. yeah, being litigated, they said, all right, well, we don't want to do the exact same thing that right now is under question in the courts. So what's another way of voting down our pay raise is, okay, if we can't vote down the COLA, so the cost of living adjustment, hence pay raise, we'll keep the COLA in the budget, we'll just make it zero dollars. So this concept that the legislators voted to give themselves an $1,800 pay raise is just not true. They voted to give themselves the COLA, but they funded the COLA at the grand sum of zero dollars. And as you know, Rick, the my job is to, to pay whatever the appropriation is that the legislature approves. And in this case, they approved an appropriated level for raises of zero dollars, which is exactly what I'm going to pay them. And frankly, that's the right thing to do, because, I mean, you'd really have to be shameless right now to be pitching for a raise when, mo- you know, a third of the country's unemployed and and, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and they've literally worked four days over the last few months in session. Right. So. Uh, you know, it's the worst possible time to be advocating for a race. So they did technically keep it in there, but I think they kept it in there to try to avoid a further legal challenge. Now, can someone once again turn around and sue me? Yeah, sure, I guess they could. I don't advocate that they do it. I can't control it. What I would ask, though, is that if somebody feels like they deserve that race so much that they're going to sue me, that they actually have the guts to sue me right now when they're still in office so that I could hold them up as the poster child for shameless shameless grifters that they really are. Because, honestly, it is so infuriating to me as controller to have to deal with knuckleheads like this. I mean, it's, it's what makes all of us look bad. And in this case, we're talking about a, a few legislators who should have never been elected to public office to begin with, but who can nonetheless, you know, tie up the court's uh, with these ridiculous lawsuits. I hope it doesn't happen. But in the meantime, what I can control is not paying them the raise. And that's what I'm going to do. It's a $0 line item in the budget that was specifically acted upon by the General Assembly. On purpose, yes, with full intent to not get the raise. Um can you tell me, I mean, given obviously what we know about the state of uh, our revenue situation uh, and the bleak picture that is, uh, obviously the legislature did approve uh, uh, the mechanism to borrow from the Federal Reserve. Um, I believe there's still interfund borrowing uh, that exists and some special capabilities for you. How 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 are you going to manage this budget in this uncertain environment that we're in well it's going 
going to be the biggest challenge of my lifetime. I honestly thought, and we, I've been on your show many times talking about what it was like to be the controller during the worst fiscal crisis in our history, which we just were getting out of, right? Um, and that in and of itself was like monumentally difficult task. But at least during the budget impasse, we still had strong revenues coming into the state. Now, I didn't have legal authority without a budget to spend those revenues and pay the bills on time, which is why we had such a huge bill backlog. But um, you know, I did take a almost seventeen billion dollar bill backlog during the budget impasse and whittle it down to seven billion, which is still a lot, but certainly a lot better than almost seventeen billion. We were finally getting out of the out of the woods here, right? You could see some light between the trees and then COVID nineteen hits. So that's gonna blow another close to seven, maybe seven point two, seven point three billion dollars into our lost revenues. I mean that's not it has nothing to do with prior fiscal irresponsibility, right? This has nothing to do with prior years of mismanagement. This is 100% the extra $7 billion on top of the $7 billion we have today. The extra $7 billion is a result of, of COVID and of also delaying the, um, the period for filing your taxes, right? So this current fiscal year that we're in, we normally have great revenues coming in in April, but those have been postponed uh, those taxes don't have to be filed until July. So that really hurt us in this fiscal year by over a billion dollars. And um, it's the next fiscal year we are going to be experiencing. Thankfully, we have a budget, but we what we will see is a gigantic hole blown in our budget of lost revenues that it will take us significant time to recover. So we cannot recover without the federal government coming in and helping us. And that's not a bailout. That's just legitimate help that every single one of the 50 states is going to need from the federal government to make them whole for the revenues that they lost as a direct result of COVID-19. We're not there yet. They haven't helped us yet, but that's the help that we're going to need. That's Illinois State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. Madam Comptroller, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And everyone, please Please stay safe. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio on a very, very strange Sunday in downtown Chicago. Joining me now on the phone is Democratic State Representative Emmanuel Chris Welch, Democrat from Hillside. He is chairman of the House Executive Committee. Uh, Representative, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Rick, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Can you uh, give us an idea of what's uh, going on out in in your western suburbs? Yeah, since about 3, 4 o'clock, uh, there's been a lot of things shut down. I live in Hillside uh, in the uh, Target Strip Mall, not too far from my house, uh, has been shut down since about 3, 4 o'clock. Uh, streets to get in, in in that area are entirely shut down, uh, and that's because we had heard that uh, you know looters who were over in the North Riverside Mall area uh, were headed west. Also, uh, Walmart and Forest Park, which is my district, and then just west of me, uh, the Oak Brook Mall was uh, closed and and guarded heavily by police, and the Walmart and Villa Park. Uh, So there's a lot of protections being taken place out here, and I will tell you, um, you know, the message is being lost because of looting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Protesting and First Amendment right uh, is 
definitely something that we should all encourage. Uh, but this looting is uh, its just nonsense, and folks need to knock it off. Yeah, I, I mean, and, uh, I harken back to what the mayor said earlier today and talking about how it, it's uh, hijacking the, the, the protest, hijacking the message. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I do believe, based on what we're seeing and hearing, that a lot of uh, what's happening is happening uh, by folks that don't, don't even live in our city. Uh, you know, there are legitimate protesters who, uh, for a couple of hours each day, have uh, marched and got their message out. Uh, and then the, the marches have been uh, hijacked uh, by those with an ulterior motive. And, you, you know, I've... I've I've struggled with this because, you know, as a white kid from the suburbs and there's that inherent white privilege that, you know, I, I grew up with and I, I it, it's hard for me to put into words what I can just imagine to be the feeling of when you see, uh, you know, that video of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the subsequent outrage and what a, what a catalyst that was for so many uh, so many over so long a period of time, um, and and now to you know see national protests, but then you see the national protests are turning the same way that the the, the protests did here in Chicago last night. And yeah. what what folks have to realize, uh, Rick, is that this is anger that is built up over time. So many black unarmed people have been killed at the hands of uh, bad police officers. And, and let's, let's emphasize bad police officers, because uh, those are the ones that are making all the good ones uh, look bad. Uh, and what the, the issue is, 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 as Dr. Martin Luther King said in the 60s, when you see protests and riots like this, it's because people have not been heard. And in this case, people have not been heard because they want justice and they want equality. The fact that everyone has seen that 10-minute video of this officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck and only one of the officers has been arrested and charged with anything, uh, and I'm afraid until those other three get charged, you're going to continue to see these protests day after day after day. People want justice. Those officers have to be charged, convicted, and sentenced because we want justice in this country uh, for the deaths of unarmed black men. Yeah, and, and and I mean, even when you there was the, another video from behind which shows three of them all kneeling on George Floyd, and it, it just uh, you know it just it, it it stuns me. And you're right, it, it's it's bad police, it's bad policing, and it's the ones that make the rest of the police look bad but we've seen there and i don't know what the mindset is for all of these uh killings police shootings of unarmed african americans uh i don't know what that mindset is in 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 these bad cops you know unfortunately in this very divided country that we live in we have a person in the white house uh, that does not understand that words matter, especially the words coming out of uh, that office. Uh, you need someone who's a healer-in-chief and not a divider-in-chief. Uh, and there's people that buy into that division. Uh, and it gives those who already have the tendencies to be bad uh, to be bad, and in fact, many to be worse. Uh, that officer, if you watch that video, uh, he could care less. 
uh, in broad daylight that he was being videotaped and uh, could care less that this man was crying out uh, for his dying mother. Uh, and that, that is someone who just did not care. And, and those are the types of officers, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to reach them no matter what kind of training you give them. That's, and that's what I wonder because everybody talks about, you know, training and new types of training and training to teach trust. Um, I mean, laudable goals, but th- does it make a difference? Absolutely not. You you, you can't train someone not to shoot someone in the back 16 times like we saw in the Laquan McDonald video uh, a few years ago. You can't train someone to uh, not put their knee on someone's neck for 10 minutes, uh, for any minute. Uh, it's just inappropriate. And the fact that three other officers uh, stood there and did nothing, uh, particularly while bystanders uh, were trying to get them to act, uh, just just showed um, the lack of um, uh, attention to a person's life, uh, the lack of care for that person's life. I know we're in the immediacy of the moment, but do you think maybe if we took a step back here and, and again looked not at the rioting, but look at the protests and the peaceful protests, that this might give some kind of enhanced efforts towards trying to deal with various aspects of inequality uh, in Springfield. You know, we say that and we hope that after every death of an unarmed black man, uh, but uh, this is why you see the anger that you see out here in these streets, not just in Chicago, but all across America. And I think until these issues are seriously addressed, not just in Springfield, but in state capitals all across the country and in D.C., um, you know, people are going to continue to get more and more angry. In the age of social media, when these things are, are now out there and can be played on loop after loop after loop, uh, when folks, uh, you know, have... It's been ingrained in them when, as kids when they stood for the Pledge of Allegiance and believed the line at the end that justice for all. Uh, when you believe that and you see that all these injustices actually exist year after year, people are going to get more and more angry unless we bring about systemic change in this country. We're speaking with Democratic State Representative Emanuel Chris Welch from Hillside. He's the chairman of the Illinois House Executive Committee. Mr. Chairman, please hang on. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is the chairman of the powerful Illinois House Executive Committee, Democrat from Hillside State Representative Emanuel Chris Welch. Uh, and Representative, I want to I want to absolutely, because I know I made the mistake once that you would, uh, I, I thought you were still on the higher ed committee and you had moved on to run the powerful House Executive <laughs> Committee. And truly, you got a lot of face time in Springfield in, the, in that brief uh, pandemic driven session. Um, obviously i was working from chicago uh on it from afar but it, it looked like a very strange uh circumstance with uh, going on in the uh the old prairie capital convention center the bank of springfield center 
Yeah, it was definitely unprecedented. I will tell you, it was not like any other session or end of session that I'd ever been through before and probably will never be uh, through that again. So we definitely lived through uh, history last week. And, uh, you know, uh, I was excited to be there to do the work of the people. And uh, I think we did a good job of uh, addressing many of the issues. Um, you know, it's not, it wasn't perfect, uh, but we got a lot done. Well, I mean... Was it hard to, uh, given issues like social distancing and wearing a mask, uh, at least most most wore a mask, then those who, the one who didn't got booted and decided to show up again? Uh, Honestly, it, it wasn't hard at all, Rick. I mean, we, we, we went to work every day. We, we followed the house rules to wear face coverings. Uh, even the one that in, was booted the first day came back the next couple of days uh, and followed the house rules. We got the work done. Yeah, but I mean, in the normal sense, there's always a bit of schmoozing and camaraderie and all of that, which, you know, this seemed to be a much more kind of antiseptic type of a, of a process. Well, you know, we we are all type A personalities in, in this type of space, and you do like to be a little bit more friendly and hug and uh, uh kiss folks on the cheek type of thing. But, you know, this this COVID-19 crisis has changed that. And I think that's going to change people's behavior for months and years to come. Uh, it's just uh, something to be mindful of uh, going forward, especially, you know, come the fall, we're going to be in flu season. You're not going to know if this is the flu or if it's COVID-19. Uh, I think it's important that folks have had to change their behaviors. I noticed that one of the things that was scheduled to be voted on and then it got pulled due to opposition was uh, the concept of remote voting. And I was I was curious about your thoughts on it. I mean, one, you know, I can understand the desire among some lawmakers to want to, you know, show that they're working for their uh, their district for their constituents and making the effort to go to Springfield and, and do legislation. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people were citing, well, the, the legislature met when the, there was the Spanish flu in 1918. Well, we didn't necessarily have the communication skills uh, or technology that we do now. I, w- I was curious about your thoughts on that whole debate. Well, you know, I actually voted for the bill when it had the remote legislation in it. And that was because I'm sensitive to my colleagues who I've talked to over these last couple of months that have, uh, you know, underlying conditions. Uh, And not everyone was completely comfortable with being there. And I think that at least that option should have been available uh, and made people a lot more comfortable. Personally, I enjoyed being there with the guidelines that were put in place and, and made sure that everyone would follow them. I enjoyed being in the space and being able to talk to people and negotiate right there in real time. Uh, I do feel like you lose something uh, in all the Zoom meetings and conference calls. Uh, and there's just something about type A people being in a in, in even if it's just six feet apart, being able to communicate with each other and you can get a lot of things done. Uh, and there are a lot of things that my, our friends on the other side of the aisle raised uh, that were actually addressed because they raised good points. And I, I think doing that virtually probably would not have happened. Well, obviously, number one was getting a budget done. Um, and well, that, the other side didn't help with that. Uh, no, 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 I, I, I understand. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, to me... That was a significant achievement. I, I frankly, absolutely, I did not expect the chambers to finish 
Uh, granted, it went four, four plus days instead of three, but I did not expect to finish just because of all of the great uncertainty that still exists out there about how much money is the state going to have, how much are we going to get from Washington, if any. We've got the $5 billion dollar, uh, borrowing from the Federal Reserve going on. I mean, just the, the uncertainty, I would have expected that we'd possibly see the legislature back in session. Uh, you know, a lot of folks did not understand the amount of work that we had been doing from home. Uh, we've The House and Senate had several working groups uh, that were bipartisan working groups and were meeting weekly, uh, you know, preparing for a time when we would return to session. We didn't know when we would return, but we were preparing for if and when that would happen. And so uh, proper planning pre- uh, prevented poor performance in this instance. And we got there uh, because we had a plan in place. We were able to execute, uh, and, and we have a budget. And I, I think that, you know, we have to give kudos to the governor and the leaders, uh, both the Democrats and the Republican leadership, uh, because this state can't go ever again without a budget. Uh, and now under Governor Pritzker, we've had two budgets in a row. Uh, again, this ain't pretty. It's not the, the best. Uh, but w- what we couldn't afford to do was have this state go without a budget and have a step back when actually this is the time when folks need government the most. A time of crisis is when they need government the most. And I think we stepped up and, and served in that instance. One thing, too, that I was surprised at was uh, the fact that uh, the legislature was able to approve uh, the tax uh, changes that uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot fought, thought was fighting for for a Chicago casino. And, of course, you know, no secret, every time you see a casino bill, it becomes the Christmas tree that falls over all the time. Uh, but... Uh, uh, this one uh, got through, and it, and it got bipartisan support. And I think that's because the mayor did the work. Uh, af- after the last uh, regular session ended in May, uh, she didn't stop. She kept working. Uh, she called meetings. Uh, I was in one of those meetings and several others, and uh, she met with the Republican caucus. She did the work, and, uh, uh, you know, that work was rewarded. And I also want to say she stayed very disciplined, not allowing that bill to become the Christmas tree. Right. Uh, I think actually played in her favor. And I also think the fact that uh, the Capitol bill uh, that has been passed uh, now the last two years is really dependent on that casino getting up and running. So I think the crisis... Uh, uh, and the, the 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 hole in our budget when it comes to revenue that the comptroller spoke of earlier, I, I think timing played in the mayor's favor as well. And one thing I've learned in this business is timing is everything. Uh, and uh, she nailed it. Uh, and she, you know, you, people got to give credit where credit is due. Well, I always thought that was one of the great features of the uh, inf- capital program, the infrastructure repair program, was the fact that. It, it, revenue to fund it was reliant on Chicago casinos because that pretty much uh, kept it from becoming its own quagmire uh, after all these years. And and truly, you know, I thought uh, Tim Butler, Republican from Springfield, did an excellent job explaining that this is not a bill for Chicago. This is a bill for all of us because everybody's got a project that counts on revenue from that Chicago casino, everybody's got a, a road or a bridge or a water project, something that is dependent upon, heavily dependent upon, uh, that those Chicago casino revenues. You know, 
the executive committee, I want to give a, a shout out to those guys, both Democratic side and Republican side, because we vetted every single bill that came through the special session last week. And I got to tell you, you know, we don't always agree, uh, but I, I think the people on that committee uh, do a heck of a job in asking the tough questions and uh, you know, again, even when we don't agree on it, on everything, we get the work for the people done. Well, and, and I, I'm curious because, I, again, you know, I'm watching it from uh, on my computer laptop from 200 miles away. But I could I, for the most part, I, there seemed to be a more intense sense of purpose on both sides than. Uh, what what you would normally find, uh, you know, uh, in the General Assembly, that they're, they're pretty much an understanding. We don't know when we're coming back. We got a lot on the plate. We got to get this going. Um, and, and I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me. But I, I just got that there was a maybe a, a, a sense of dedication that you don't normally see. Well, I saw that very early on. I think you're absolutely right. And let me tell you where I saw it. I saw it at the very beginning of session when Republicans were also telling Representative Bailey he should wear a face covering, uh, and he was bucking his own caucus. And that's because everyone wanted to be there, follow the guidelines, get in there, and get the work of the people done, and get out of there as quickly as possible. Uh, saw that from day one. And again, uh, even though they didn't vote for the budget in the end, uh, they did vote for a lot of things that got done that week. And I want to uh, commend my, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, for coming with a sense of purpose. Uh, vote by mail, uh, a big thing as well, and and uh, one that uh, I was kind of surprised that it still becomes is such a bone of contention. Uh, obviously, you have uh, from the White House on down on the Republican side is opposing vote by mail, and the president uh, even getting flagged by Twitter for saying that voting by mail is is you know supremely fraudulent. Um, to me, you know, given what we saw in March, it just seemed like a good idea to, to expand a program and, and just get, get a, uh, mail in applications to as many people as possible. You know, Rick, we heard today that 15 states are seeing their COVID-19 numbers actually increase already. We don't know what's going to happen in the summer. We don't know where we're going to be in the fall. But come November at election time, we need to make sure the election takes place and that it's safe and secure. And what this bill, it was just for the November 2020 election. We can revisit everything again next year. Uh, And what we wanted to do before leaving town was making sure that everyone wanted to participate in the process could do that uh, and feel safe and secure. Uh, Nothing is going to change if you want to still go out and vote in a ballot box. But for those who need that extra level of comfort and want to vote by mail, that's what this this new bill allows it to do. And I'm looking forward to the day the governor signs this and send that message that we want everyone to participate in the process and feel safe and secure. Well, and I thought, too, it was interesting that it makes it a, a school holiday because after kind of the mess up with the Chicago Board of Elections in the primary with uh, – privately owned places that were counted on for polling places where those private owners pulled the plug on them, uh, it really created quite a conundrum. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And that's one of those features that I hope in, uh, when we return for regular session in 2021 uh, that it stays around. I mean, I've, I've supported Election Day being a state holiday uh, from day one. And uh, let's see how well it works in November. Uh, and if the data supports it with turnout, uh, I, I hope we keep it going. Uh, does it favor any party? I don't think so. I think turnout, you know, works on both sides of the aisle. You know, you get out and get your message out and get your people to the polls, and they have plenty of time to do it because the entire day is a state holiday. No one should complain. Very good. Very good. Democratic State Representative Emanuel Chris Welch, Democrat from Hillside, Chairman of the House Executive Committee. Thank you so much for joining me today. Rick, always a pleasure. Thank you, friend. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. 708 on this Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pearson, and this is the bonus hour of your Sunday Spin. Um, So after the violent protests that had begun in Minneapolis uh, as a result of uh, George Floyd's death, uh, it looked like the president uh, would make some statement in the Rose Garden. But instead of addressing that, he uh, began a process of sanctions against China over the way that the country downplayed the coronavirus. Now, I've got to remember, the president was actually very supportive of China in the early days of the virus spread, but this is what he has to say now. The United States wants an open and constructive relationship with China, but achieving that relationship requires us to vigorously defend our national interests. The Chinese government has continually violated its promises to us and so many other nations. These plain facts cannot be overlooked or swept aside. The world is now suffering as a result of the malfeasance of the Chinese government. China's cover-up of the Wuhan virus allowed the disease to spread all over the world, instigating a global pandemic that has cost more than 100,000 American lives and over a million lives worldwide. Now, the president went even further at a time of a global pandemic and international efforts to come up with a treatment and vaccine for COVID-19, Trump pulled the U.S. and the United States funding out of the World Health Organization. China has total control over the World Health Organization, despite only paying $40 million per year compared to what the United States has been paying, which is approximately $450 million a year. We have detailed the reforms that it must make and engage with them directly, but they have refused to act. Because they have failed to make the requested and greatly needed reforms, we will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. The world needs answers from China on the virus. We must have transparency. Uh, we all know, obviously, that we're in the new phase in the governor's reopening plan, Chicago moving into it on the 3rd. But what are we doing about the economy? Where is the economy? National Economic Director Larry Kudlow says there's hopeful signs for a rebound. Uh, but keep in mind, it was Kudlow who originally said he didn't think the coronavirus would have any effect on the nation's economy. Here's Larry Kudlow on Fox News. 
There's some hopeful signs, and I think we're going to move strong into the second half of the year with uh, perhaps as much as 20 percent economic growth. We'll talk about this with the business leaders and next steps on economic policy. You know, we've gone through the liquidity phase. Now we're in the uh, reopening phase. I think the next phase has to go back to old-fashioned Trumponomics, cutting taxes, deregulating, fair trade deals, things that grew the economy rapidly in the first three years plus, and things that can grow the economy rapidly in the second half and on to next year. President rebuilt the economy, can do it a second time. That's National Economic Director Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring things a little local, and we're going to talk again about uh, the issue of reopening Illinois. And joining me now on the phone is Chris Johnson. Chris is head of the National Association of Theater Owners of Illinois chapter. He's also the CEO of Classic Cinemas. Chris, thanks so much for joining the Sunday Spin. Thank you for having me. Um, So... As I read it, by uh, what the governor has said, well, I mean, let's let's. I'll, I'll let you jump in. Uh, make the case. Why should theaters be able to open uh, in in this new phase rather than as the governor has originally proposed? Well, we would like to open, um, you know, earlier than the twenty eight days that uh, is best case scenario from the start of phase three, um, if everything goes, you know, uh, perfectly well. And the, and the case for it is that uh, there, there's a couple things. One, that unlike other businesses, when we open up, we're going to open up with old product, old movies. Um, and we have to do so in order to um, let the studios know that, that hey, we are open and therefore new movies should come out because if we, if we aren't able to open, they look at their, you know, the economics of of releasing new films and they say, well, you know what, let's wait, let's push that back. And so the idea being that even if we're able to open, let's say uh, we were able to open next week, the numbers would be extremely small and, and the ramp up time takes quite a bit. So best case scenario, the, the, if, if all goes, perfect. July 17th is the first um, time we're going to get a big blockbuster movie uh, in uh, in Tenet. And that, that is still in flux at this particular moment. Um, and the second part of that is we also not having a, a, um, a date to open back up, reassembling all of the um, employees and getting them back to work is another uh, is another challenge as well. And I think ultimately the reason that you know we believe we should open is the way you know the the, the protocols that we're looking to institute are you know similar to the protocols that are in you know a multitude of businesses. Chris, I want to I want to I want to get more into those protocols and how you would handle things, but sure. we, we need to take a quick break. We're speaking with Chris Johnson, head of the National Association of Theater Owners of Illinois and the CEO of Classic Cinemas. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. <laughs>
Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Speaking on the phone to Chris Johnson. He is the CEO of Classic Cinemas. Moreover, he's head of the National Association of Theater Owners of Illinois. We're talking to him about uh, the group's uh, efforts to try to move up a little bit in the uh, way that the governor's reopening plan has phased uh, movie theaters. And, uh, Chris, you were starting to talk about, you know, just how can you do social distancing in a movie theater? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the social distancing actually is the lobby area probably is the, um, you know, is the most challenging. But we can do that by... First, we can stagger the show times, put a little bit more uh, time between schedules, so the flow of people coming into the building, um, you know, is a little bit uh, uh, more spread out. But the idea is once, you know, well, first off, from a social distancing perspective, we're going to put in, you know, the six foot distance, and and you, you know, you're going to get your concessions. There won't be any self serve. We'll have somebody manning that and handing out the drinks. But the idea is once you get your concessions and go into the auditorium, all the seating will be um, six foot between guests. And if you have traditional seating, you probably would skip every other row and then put three seats between you and every other party, you know, um, group. If you're in a recliner theater, those right now are typically six and a half to seven feet apart per row. Mm -hmm. So then you could... Um, you could put a couple seats between you and you would still maintain that distance. Reserve seating also helps in that effort in that um, you can see exactly where you're going to sit. But I think one of the, 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 the big things and, um, is that once you get into the auditorium and you're set, there isn't any talking, there isn't any exchange of, of um, you know, whether it's uh, delivery of, of items and uh, and you're actually not face to face with anybody. So it, the the auditorium is actually a pretty good good place for uh, for social distancing. Um, I, you mentioned about uh, right now there isn't a lot of new product out there. Um, Correct. I mean, how long does it take for? I mean, is it, is it and that's got to be a national effort, right? For states to be reopening for some of that product absolutely. to move? Yes, absolutely. It's actually one that, uh, it's, it's actually national and, and to some regard it's worldwide. And, uh, you know, so the, the film companies are all kind of waiting for, you know, one person to put, to bring in, bring in a big release. And I was mentioning, um, Warner Brothers has Christopher Nolan's movie Tenant that comes out on July 17th. And then the week after is Mulan with uh, from Disney, and they all kind of, you know, they're waiting for the the first person to, you know, sort of commit, and uh, that's the uh, that's the issue that we're facing right now is that they're looking at each state, and, and Illinois is a is a very important state with having Chicago, um, you know, as part of their their rollout uh, of of product. And, and and first run product is what we live by. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously, uh, what you said with with older product that you have now, uh, this would be kind of anyway like a beta testing anyway, wouldn't it be? Exactly. Exactly. And 
you know, as, as an aside, uh, we have one Peter personally in, in our, you know, in our classic cinemas uh, chain in Beloit. And we opened on Wednesday and I actually went to my first movie. Ah. And <laughs> yeah, and we put in all the protocols that we we're going to put in Illinois. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to experience it firsthand. And, uh, and you know, everybody was wearing masks and, and uh, you know, they prepared our, we had self-serve um, um, product there and they, they, they prepared everything. We couldn't refill anything or do anything. And, and I thought it went well. I mean, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't efficient, but it, but it definitely, um, you know, gave you that sense of, uh, Hey, they're, you know, they're taking this seriously and they're, they're doing a good job of, of, um, executing the plan. So I was impressed, you know, by that. What was the occupancy? Uh, the occupancy was terrible. Okay. <laughs> um, there were seven people in my show, so... Uh, wow. and, uh, well, I need to get the word out, right? I mean, it's they're exactly. not used to it. Um, yeah. So. And and I'm, I'm sure since it's in Beloit, you, you serve cheese popcorn at, at that one. <laughs> we have some sprinkles, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I have a serious question. I mean... We uh, and this is kind of about your industry specifically. Is given what the pandemic and the stay-at-home order and how that has kind of changed people's entertainment delivery system, or maybe accelerated that change? Because obviously, when you're looking at studios doing streaming uh, video services, those kinds of things. Um, you know what what is the environment for cinemas uh you know as we get out of this yeah so you know i get that question a fair amount and the, and the thing that i would say is that in the netflix and hulu and uh, peacock and every other service there is those are definitely the at home uh um you know choices but i do think there is that aspect that you know, I want to bring my friends and family out and have a night out, and um, and so when you when you decide that you're going to go out of the house, that a movie at a movie theater is definitely still a very viable option. And from the economics of it, the the idea that you know, hey, you can release it just you know directly to streaming, it it doesn't work. You need to you need to harvest you know the different segments of the life cycle, and so. You know, the fact that we were setting records in, you know, last year and, and uh, um, you know, I think the biggest, uh, you know, Avengers, the biggest movie mm-hmm. ever um, was just in 2019. So, so the idea is there still is that appetite. And actually, the people that consume product, Netflix and so on, um, definitely are, are actually, you know, bigger movie theater um this movie theaters more so if we can survive this you know the ability right. to this closure and get back i think we're i think we're in pretty good shape and uh and there have been reaffirmations of that from from the studios you know disney sony and um paramount and, you know uh, basically all of them uh the only one that uh, you know was kind of the scuttlebutt was uh was the movie Trolls, which was released by Universal. And, um, but when you look at the economics of 
you know, kind of where they where they went. They're not. They're definitely not um, sort of compelling to to skip the movie theater. Uh- it's it's interesting to hear that because it, it's almost like a phasing of entertainment uh, situation where cinemas right. fit in kind of thing. Uh, one of the things I know that uh, in your discussions with trying to get the, the, the theaters more open more quickly is the importance of a movie theater to a small town. And actually, you, you just cited Beloit. Is it, I mean, that's a good example, I think. Right. But, but sure. I mean, w- w- there, there is something classic about those the, the movie house. Absolutely. And, and, and even, you know, even, um, I don't want to say necessarily small towns, but like the suburbs, we happen to have, you know, theaters, and whether it be Oak Park or Elmhurst or you know, whatever. And it, it, it is kind of an anchor in the downtown, right? And it, and it does, um, you know, it, it sort of brings some vibrancy to the, to the downtown. And, um, you know, we have theaters also in, you know, towns like Freeport, Illinois and out there and, 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 and our constituents, you know, they, they have theaters all over, but there definitely is something about, Hey, what are we going to do tonight? Oh, let's go to a movie, you know, and, and, and let's go downtown. And then afterwards, let's go, you know, get, get some food or maybe before get some drinks, but it, it definitely sort of centers the downtown. And, uh, there's also a lot of things that center around that as well, whether it be, you know, we, we host a, a, a lot of, um, you know, uh, school events and library events and we're, you know, and it's just it's just kind of in the fabric of the community as far as supporting you know all the different uh, activities that go on in the, in the town. So well, I I just I just think of those uh, the, the the classic uh, marquees you know uh, in, a, oh, in, a, in a downtown. I mean that that's that's kind of the vibrancy of, of aspect of of, of of revitalized downtowns. I think that's why it's very important that uh, you know so many theaters got the attention for being refurbished uh it's 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 uh, not, obviously i'm a fan uh, chris johnson head of the national association of theater owners of illinois and the ceo of classic cinemas uh chris thank you so much and we'll be following this story along and we'll uh, see see what happens thank you this is the sunday spin on 720 wgn once again here's rick pearson of the chicago tribune Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is Mark Maxwell. Mark is the Statehouse correspondent for the Nexstar TV stations here in Illinois, including WCIA-TV in Champaign and, yes, Chicago's very own WGN-TV. Mark, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Rick, a pleasure to be back with you, and congrats on the new time slot. I don't know about you, but the coffee is still on for me, even at this late hour. <laughs> I think I could really use some coffee right now because uh, uh, this has been this has been such such a year, and it, it and and there's always something. There's always something, and when you look at what. This city has been through what it's going through. We're now we're seeing how the suburbs are are getting hit by uh, looting. 
um, it just never ends. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really having trouble dealing with it. I mean, it's like I said, when I walked over from the Thompson Center today over to the studio, that was really the first chance I had to see in person uh, the, the, some of the damage that was caused by the looting here in downtown Chicago. And it, it just literally took my breath away. And um, the, 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 what, I was, what I was breathing in was sawdust from the, the, the guys putting up the boards over the windows. Um, you know, I, 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 I've been watching and following this nationally on TV. And one of the things that I've really has troubled me a lot was the whole issue of uh, journalists getting caught in the line of fire on these things. Uh, you had the uh, Omar Jimenez, the CNN correspondent, Chicago-based correspondent for CNN, who's uh, he and his crew were arrested on live TV. Uh, um, you had uh, uh, a, a young reporter, female reporter in Louisville, uh, and uh, you had uh, law enforcement shooting uh, rubber pellets at her and her cameraman. Uh, a Minnesota Star, Minneapolis Star Tribune reporter uh, had a, a bullet was shot uh, through his window because he was going through an intersection, even though he had been cleared because he was a member of the media. Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of people on edge, a lot of tension, but I just kind of wanted your take on all this. Yeah, Rick, it's, it's interesting. I'll say I think a lot of us reporters have covered protests before. But I can say for me, uh, I was in the middle of the downtown protests, uh, some of the demonstration just last night. And tonight uh, we're covering it from Champaign. There's there's a series of uh, looting uh, happening even here. Uh, and some of the protests in the city of Springfield were more peaceful. Um, but it, if you listen to it's just it's 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 a trying time. It's, it's a difficult story to cover because you have the voices of people who, you know, if we listen to the quote from you know Dr. Martin Luther King, who said the protest is the voice of the unheard. There are a lot of people out there who really do want this outlet, uh, whether it's being you know pent up uh, during these time of the coronavirus closures. There's all there's this extra frustration that's an added layer on top of right, right. Uh, the, the decades and centuries of uh, you know racial injustice that so many of these protesters speak about when they go to the streets. Uh, many of them, in, in the indiscriminate nature of the looting. You know, that kind of uh, violence or lawlessness, uh, those actions are endorsed by, you know, next to no one. Right. Um, but it does still seem like there's a way to listen to that sort of uh, that scream and, and say, well, what is it that they're trying to say? And, 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 you know, there's a way to listen to that still. I, I think that, uh, you know, as a political reporter, I, I don't advocate for any political cause one way or the other. But Correct. the one thing that I think I, I, if I can, Rick, if I can advocate for this, I can say that we do have an outlet for political disagreements and we saw that last week in session which is where our elected officials come together and they debate things and they put it all out there and then they they agree on some sort of way to move and then they leave and they go do something about it there there is a political process that i think maybe people have lost trust in but if they you know put if there's that renewed sense of saying let's put this into something it's that there is a political process that can yield a result and we've seen that happen in some ways well and that's why you know i always advocate for civic engagement and civic education and it's not i'm not saying what you know what party to join or or that kind of thing mm-hmm. but 
But if if you want to, you know, make a difference, you have to get involved. And obviously that that starts with voting and uh, voting means things. Uh, Voting voting has consequences. Voting, you know, that's the first thing. But um, yes, there I mean, we do have a process. I, I can understand you know the frustration of many of those uh, nonviolent protesters that you know just wonder if it isn't more lip service over over these decades and and you know yes change does not happen quickly and we know that in springfield uh, if anything uh, but i mean and i think you hit it on the head too that i think the kind of a pent up uh uh, I don't know what the right word is, but just people feeling pent up by the homebound nature of those uh, executive orders from the, the governor. Uh, I mean, it, it almost seemed like, in some respects, uh, a perfect storm kind of situation. But there's also the question of where do we go from here? Right. You know, if in in, in the eyes of and, and in the voices of some of these, um, you know, vandals or looters, um, you know, they, they may feel content to blow off some steam. Um, but as we all try to recover from this and recognize and listen, moving forward, there's a real question that I think journalists are going to be on the front lines of understanding, uh, you know, telling the stories of the storefront owner who has to pick up the shambles, not just of the glass shards that now litter the street outside of their storefront, but also, you know, file the insurance claims and then hope, hope that there are enough customers to come back and keep their company alive in the next three months as they try to recover from this coronavirus. It's going to be difficult. And, you know, it's, there's just there's more reporting to do than ever, um, yeah. and yes. you know it just it, it's it seems like we don't have enough cameras uh, or enough <laughs> enough recorders to, to take it all down and, and share it. But uh, you know, but there, there's there's some sort of therapy I think in in listening to each other and understanding where we go from here and you know trying to you know do less harm and do more good. Yeah, and and you, I think the governor mentioned it today in the press conference. The issue of you know, here here are places that are getting looted that that have been, uh, for the most part, they've been the ones shut down for ten weeks. They're just getting ready to at least start a soft partial reopening. And what's what do they see? But uh, windows shattered and uh, their their stock immediately gone. Um, I, I mean frustration with uh, for for these small business owners these some of these smaller retailers and uh you know we we uh, going into just the pandemic we weren't sure how many of them were going to come back and especially you know you've i'm sure you've talked to sam toya i've talked to sam toya sam toya's talked to everybody but that was always my big fear too was you know with with restaurants and those kinds of things well a number of those uh, got uh, severely damaged uh, in in last night's uh, violence. Um, but uh, you know, I asked uh, Representative Chris Welch if you know it is if we step back from this, is is anything going to change when it comes to issues of inequality uh, being dealt with in Springfield and. Uh, I don't know if you heard his response, but he he actually questioned whether anything anything would change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to be cynical. I think that's kind of probably one of the main points that many of the, the demonstrators went to the streets to say was that, OK, maybe we do have a political process, but it's not working for us right now. And it's certainly not working fast enough. 
and that seems to be one of the biggest motivating factors is that there, there's a discontent, there's a frustration at, at the system we have. Um, but that you know that conversation is going to continue in, in these next you know few weeks and months. I I also heard your questions uh, to the governor or to the mayor earlier at the press conference today, Rick, and you were asking you know do we know yet who might be uh, behind any of you know organizing uh, some of these these protests? And it you know I think there, there is a history uh, throughout. You know, uh, you know, our nation for sure of, of some political, and this is a cynical thought, but there are some political uh, uh, groups or organizations that see opportunity sure. uh, in a movement that mobilizes like this and that sees the chaos as a chance to sort of press our politics in a certain direction. And who knows, uh, you know, as we learn more about who might be organizing some of these things, what, what that might tell us about what, what's at play on, on the political side of it. Um, but certainly this is, a, th- this is a moment that's going to, uh, you know, ring out in the ears of voters uh, all the way to November uh, as this this is not it just doesn't feel like any other ordinary protest it feels uh, certainly different no it really and, and that's the thing is maybe you know obviously we're talking in the immediacy of things and and maybe uh, but maybe it's different when you step back but I'm not I'm not sure I, I really don't this is this has really been something else we're speaking with Mark Maxwell he's state house correspondent for the next star stations in Illinois including WCIA TV channel 3 in Champaign and Chicago's very own channel 9 WGN I'm Rick Pearson this is the Sunday spin <music> on this Sunday evening in Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Joining me on the phone is Mark Maxwell. He is the Statehouse correspondent for the Next Star Star TV stations uh, in Illinois. And uh, Mark, I have a call from uh, Ron, who always has a good question. Ron, thanks for uh, calling the Sunday Spin. Yes. You know, uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, and to your guests, you know, uh, to your guests, I've been reading over and over, actually for the last six months, Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. So to me, it seemed like the answer has been answered. We are in total chaos, and, and your guests made reference, you know, to him, but I, I just... You want to ask him, where is any kind of optimism? Because all of the things, the conditions that he was addressing in 1968 still exist now. And I, 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 Rick, you know, I usually try to have a good question, but I really just want to make a comment. But I hear people quoting Dr. King, but do they really pitch it to some of the solutions that he talked about? So I just want to ask him, where is it? Because... After 1968, and we are still here. Total chaos. So that's it. And thanks as always, Rick. This is some some, some very tough time, but thanks for letting me ask that question. Sure, Ron. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and, and I think Ron does make a point. You know, how far has uh, civil rights really progressed in, in since Dr. King's assassination in '68? And you know why? Why are the why are we fighting the same fights? I guess is what it comes down to. And you know this kind of you know I know I know it's not necessarily a fair comparison, but it's kind of like the issue of uh, uh, shooting incidents at 
at schools and how everybody looks for something to be that catalyst that that moves something and you know nothing's nothing's changed much on that on that score at all and mm-hmm. i mean so yeah i mean the frustration obviously is 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 evident and uh yeah we do have a political process and you were front row and center to see that in the uh, special pandemic session of the uh, the illinois legislature which um I, and i mentioned this to to chris welch earlier that i even though you know i was far away watching it uh, on my laptop i i still could kind of sense that there was a a more of a dedication to purpose of of getting in, getting the job done, and getting out than what you'd normally find among uh, the, the General Assembly? Well, some of the lawmakers might tell you that that uh, dedication to purpose was uh, due in part to the absence of reporters and lobbyists and the public. They were sort of <laughs> isolated uh, from a lot of the people that would normally uh, bend their ear or ask for a favor or ask for a soundbite. And so they were able to uh, sort of push through or focus on a lot of, you know, three or four months of work in about four days and took a lot of votes. Uh, but, you know, certainly that has its downside. You know, the public input is uh, is certainly a big part of the legislative process. Yeah, and, and that's what I thought was kind of uh, a frustrating situation was how, uh, you know, the access, access to legislators that are deciding policy is, is, is key for the media. We're kind of the representatives of the public asking the representatives that the public elected what what's going on and that seemed to be kind of a a critical element and you know quite frankly that's we've seen that somewhat the case with the the way uh we've been forced to kind of pool these things for the governor's uh press conferences Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just, Ron's question still is sort of lingering with me. He was asking about, you know, where is the progress? And, you know, in listening to uh, a lot of the elected officials, I I can almost hear their voices in my head now. If if we were to interview them and say, where is the progress? They they point to some of the things they got done in the last two years uh, in Springfield. I think Dr. King's message toward uh, the end of his years was about uh, more more of the economic uh, justice and, and the fact that uh, he felt so many uh, people of color were left out of the economic equation in our country. And the, the, the cannabis legislation that got passed promised uh, a, a new day in that chapter. Now, those promises haven't all quite come in yet. Um, but, you know, Springfield has done some work to try and include uh, more avenues, uh, you know, in, in reducing uh, uh, cr- crimes for some of those things, but also for creating new business opportunities and for uh, new investment. Um, I think our elected officials today would tell you that progress does come. And in moments like this, it's easy to look back and say, uh, you know, it, it's it's dark right now, um, but there there has been action and effort uh, to try and address some of these things. And uh, I, I don't know. I guess Ron asked a really good question, and it kind of kind of stuck with me there. But um, yeah, no, and 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 know, I, certainly, you know, certainly on the criminal justice front, uh, we're seeing a whole different era. And and one of the things I always cite about that, though, is that's kind of a, a convergence of. Two different ideologies, often ideologies of you know uh, social justice advocates and, and and Democrats on one side, and conservative Republicans who are just kind of why why are we paying for these costs? Why are we paying that heavy cost for incarceration uh, when for people that that don't necessarily need to be incarcerated? Um, I mean, it's kind of a meeting of the minds there that that has actually helped fuel a lot of progress on that front. But it, 
it seems that some some of the issues that are are being you know forefront right now are, are less about legislative, I guess, and more about just the the pursuit of justice. The, the prosecutor, the police officer, the citizen; those interactions happen you know outside of any committee hall or outside of any kind of legislative body. I mean, these are the, where government meets the individual directly, and and that conversation um, certainly, I, I think, it's been. Uh, interesting to listen to uh, some police who step up and say they were sickened by uh, what they saw in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, you, you wonder how this moment uh, changes their, you know, their psyche or their practice or, or what kind of uh, behavior uh, might be altered uh, moving forward. But I, th- this does feel like a moment where, uh, you know, it's, it's not easily uh, forgettable. No. And, and you know, the, the issue is uh, still, I mean, and, and as I mentioned to, to Representative Welch, you know, you could talk about different forms of training, efforts to try to uh, always uh, get trust with your community. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if a bad cop is a bad cop, it's not, training isn't going to matter. And and when, yeah, I, sure, go ahead. Isn't that where uh, you know a good police chief comes in and talks about leadership and culture and where where you know do we believe that a, a, a community of police officers can police themselves? Do we believe that there's a way to you know change that culture from the inside out? I mean, that's always been the question of government too. Is is this whole uh, experiment of, of self governance? Can we set up rules and practices that uh, change the arc of our own you know behavior as a community together? Uh, that that is incumbent on on police uh, together in in their uh, departments across the state across the country to uh, improve uh, the way they you know interact with with uh, citizens. I think that that's that's kind of the whole goal. I don't know if there's what the, what legislative fix there might be, but a, a leadership fix certainly could. Uh, I think is part is going to be a part of the discussion increasingly from our elected officials. And uh, yeah, and quite a welcome to uh, Chicago's new police superintendent too. Uh, I mean, what a what a way to really kind of get a get a head start on the job. Um, you know, I, I was going back to Springfield, and and I was actually surprised. Uh, and again, you were kind of more boots on the a lot more boots on the ground than I was. I was actually kind of surprised that uh, the city. Uh, casino legislation got through as easily as it did just knowing the history of gaming legislation in springfield and watching it kind of uh tip and fall over as everybody attaches something on a uh, attaches a new ornament to the branches mm-hmm. uh, yeah house democrat mike zaleski was talking to me about this too he, he's been big on gaming and he, he actually made the comment to me in a phone call earlier this week he didn't think it would have been done if it wasn't in that isolated situation where lawmakers weren't being bothered, he thought that, uh, that that was one of the reasons why if there were more, I mean, imagine the pressure from an army of lobbyists to want to come down sure. and, you know, sink their teeth into this thing. But one of the other reasons why this bill may have passed is because 98% of the heaviest lifting really already got done in the last gaming bill. So they were really on the two yard line with the Chicago casino. They just had to figure out how to split up the tax rates. There wasn't really a massive expansion no. of gaming in the state in this bill that was done last session. So the the argument was already made that the capital infrastructure bill that's going to you know rebuild Illinois and Governor Pritzker's plan 
uh, is going to be funded in, in no small part by many of the revenues and taxes collected at the Chicago casino. So they had already started putting shovels in the ground. Now they said, look, we got to pay for it. Well, so, you know, there, there was some support uh, from Republicans because of that reason. They wanted to see projects in their districts funded. No, it's, it's it's actually a very good point. Is because of the antiseptic nature of the of the of the legislature uh, that 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 it couldn't get necessarily too uh, overweight and fall down on its own weight. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but that's uh, that's a very good point because we all, like I said, we've all seen uh, these things crash and burn before. Um, I was curious about uh, the, the issue of remote voting and how that uh, that fell down in the House. And I was actually kind of surprised over uh, some of the, the criticism given, you know, we're dealing with a virus that nobody still knows that much about um, and health and safety concerns uh, versus the, you know, some lawmakers who said, well, they met when in the, when there was the spanish uh, flu in, in, in 1918 mm-hmm. uh but you know my comeback is well we didn't have zoom uh, we didn't have, <laughs> we, we didn't have the internet uh i'm i'm, I'm sure you know they could have maybe done telegraph at that point but still i mean things things are a lot different then and I, I think we're more health conscious too yeah, there's an argument to be made both ways. I mean, you do have the benefit of technology, but I think that uh, even you and I would have a, a more personal conversation in person. And uh, the way I look at it was if they voted on that remote remote voting bill on day one when they first got to Springfield, I think it probably passes. But over the course of those three and then the fourth day when they had that overtime day, lawmakers themselves remembered, oh, yeah, we can – get along more talking face-to-face. Senator Dale Ryder, a Republican from Mattoon, who's retiring after, I think, 23 years in the legislature, told me that to be an effective lawmaker from downstate and represent my views to elected officials in Chicago, I have to sometimes get in their face. And so I wear a mask so I can be around them. And, you know, he said he wasn't tested and all that, but he wanted, wanted to show that respect and say, look, I know we've got the coronavirus out here, but I still have to make my point in person. And there are those legislative you know, uh, tools that lawmakers use to persuade and, and all that. And some of those abilities are limited over Zoom or over the phone. And so uh, over time, over those three or four days, you saw lawmakers remember, you know what, a lot of this work really is done better in person. And I think you saw that sort of uh, opinion shift o- over the course of their four days in Springfield. Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I, I, I do agree, too, that that would, I thought that would be like a first day kind of no-brainer uh, type of situation. But uh, um, just a, an, an interesting session. I just hope we can move uh, legis- the legislative process back to, quote, normal sometime soon, hopefully for the November veto session. Mark Maxwell, state host correspondent for the Next Star stations, including WCIA-TV Channel 3 in Champaign, WGN-TV. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Rick, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.